Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. I'm your host, Ari Armstrong, music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Jason Stott. So welcome to the show, Jason. Appreciate you being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Jason is a psychotherapist in Ontario and the author of Eros and Ethos, a new theory of sexual ethics. So we'll get going here. You write early in the book, sexuality is not a lapse in moral strength, a corrupting influence, or an area of our lives with respect to which morality is neutral. Rather, sexuality is an important expression of our ethical lives. So that to some people will seem like a strong statement. So I thought by way of introducing your ideas, you could unpack that a bit for us. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So that comes out of the introduction. And part of how I start the introduction is to talk about the history of uh, sexual ethics and, and the way that different uh, systems have treated sexuality. So I draw three broad camps. Um, the three broad camps are the resistant camp, the abstinent camp, and the indulgent camp. Um, the resistant camp is this idea that we really should be resisting uh, our sexual urges to be ready to do our duty. And it really comes out of Catholicism, but more of the Thomistic side of the Catholicism. Um, sex is part of that, but it should be really only for reproduction and in a church sanctioned marriage. And there's even some debates uh, in that camp about whether, you know, older people should be, can even morally have sex because they can no longer reproduce, right? So this is that camp. The abstinent camp is more of the uh, Augustinian um, Catholicism. Uh, St. Augustine was very opposed to sexuality, or at least after his uh, later in life he was. Early in life, he uh, not so much. Um, but th they don't think that really sex has a place at all uh, in human life. And this is partly, uh, they lean a little bit more into the Neoplatonism where the body is a, is a prison, the flesh, a corrupting influence to our pure motor soul. And the more we indulge in that corrupting influence, the, the more our soul is polluted. I mean, Plato actually uses that exact language that the body pollutes the soul. Uh, and I think the Phaedrus. So those two camps are, are, are not pro-sex. Uh, the third camp is the indulgent camp and the indulgent camp is you know, the hedonist camp. Uh, sex is great, let's do as much as possible. Um, the philosopher Aristippus uh, basically said that sex is really, it, pleasure is the only good and sexual pleasure is the highest form of that. So as much as possible with whoever, whatever, let's do it. I have never found those three camps to be very helpful in thinking about sexuality. And when I think about, you know, how am I going to integrate sex into my life? That's not any kind of guidance, right? And one of the initial reasons I started to write this book is to really try to articulate for myself uh, initially, what it, what a good sexual ethic look like? How am I going to integrate this into my life in healthy ways? A lot of people go wrong with sexuality and end up hurting themselves and others uh, or not even living very well because of it. And that's part of why I got started writing the book. Part of what I mean by it's a, a very important expression of our ethical lives is sexuality is tied to who we are in incredibly fundamental ways. Uh, while not everyone needs sex to live a good life, most of us have a constitution that we do. We do need sex, uh, or at least minimally want sex, in our life in certain ways to be happy. So 
that's the one tie-in. But sex is also an expression of our deeply held ethical beliefs. So sex is what I call uh, most elements of sex tie into our, our sentimental nature. So our sentiments are so you can think of the human mind as having sort of thinking elements and feeling elements and our sentiments uh, encompass everything from simple affect to feeling like your heart race uh, feeling butterflies in your stomach to emotions like hatred and uh, love uh, to slightly broader things i call existential emotions um, and even to uh, sense of life or existential orientation and our sexual arousal and desire tie sexual arousal and sexual desire are sentimental responses and they respond to our values and beliefs especially the ones that we have deeply internalized those values and beliefs are the product for nearly everyone of philosophy whether we do that on purpose or we just internalize the beliefs in our culture uh, very passively and so when I say sexuality is a manifestation of our ethical lives, I mean it quite literally. We literally respond through our ethical framework uh, to sex and uh, it will shape what we desire and how we think of sex and how we view it uh, all the way down. So it's a quick, quick summary, but that's, I, I mean, I really do deeply mean that sexuality is an expression of our ethical lives in as many ways as you can parse that. Okay. I wanted to pick up on a couple of details that you were getting into. First is on the religion. So I have a religious background. I don't know if you do or not. So the way that I heard this explained is that even if you think that you uh, are physically unable to have a child, like if you're older or such, well, you can still have sex because God could allow you to get pregnant. I mean, after all, in the Bible, there's like an 80-year-old woman or something that gets pregnant. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the rationale I heard on that end. And uh yeah, go ahead. There's actually, uh, so I don't remember the name of it, but there was, I believe, a papal encyclical about this question because <laughs> there was all these debates in Catholicism about, look, if reproduction is the end that sex needs to make it morally permissible and people can't reproduce, let's just say that you're barren, right? Uh, well, what is the church's position on these people, right? The, the Pope had to issue an encyclical to, to clarify it. And uh, he said that basically as long as you're in a church sponsored marriage, it's okay. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a contentious point. And uh, once you leave reason aside, you can enter into some incredibly interesting debates about nothing. Like how many angels can you fit on the head of a pin? Uh, I one time attended uh, uh, a meeting of the Catholic philosophers of America society and uh, they debated uh, this question of ensoulment. So ensoulment in Catholic doctrine is when this God puts the soul in, right? And the question was, uh, does God put, if the God puts the soul in at the moment of conception in the egg twins, what happens? Is the soul split? Or is one of the eggs not have a soul? It's like, yeah, you start with crazy premises. You start to go down crazy roads. So that's a great question. I like that one. Um, so, well, I, I grew up in a Protestant tradition. And so there wasn't quite the hard, it, it was definitely sex and marriage, but it wasn't quite the hard line against masturbation that I take it that some Catholics have. So, mm -hmm. uh, but there was still obviously a lot of guilt around the, around issues of sex, premarital sex, masturbation, those, those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm well familiar with some of these religious issues and how they uh, bleed into our sexual lives or lack thereof and lack thereof in certain cases. Yeah, I grew up a holiday Catholic, I think. Um, although uh, when I was in, I think, second grade or so, I was asked to leave Sunday school because I was asking too many questions. So 
I like to call it my unofficial excommunication. Um, so that's about the time I stopped being holiday Catholic. Uh, and I've never quite understood. Uh, so the, the, the sort of religious Christian objection to masturbation is called, it's called onanism, right? And it comes out of the Bible and the story of Onan. And uh, the story of Onan is his brother dies and he's supposed to marry his brother's widow is his tradition at that point. And Onan uh, does something unforgivable. He has sex with his brother's widow and he pulls out and comes on the ground. That's Onan's sin. Now, how does that relate to masturbation? I don't know. I have no idea. But that's the sin of Onanism. That's where yeah. the, this is the biblical support for masturbation being a sin. Well, I think it's just generally, oh, you're giving in to your baser side and you shouldn't do that. So, well, the, not... the objection it was a non reproductive act. Right. So, all non reproductive acts. But still, like he pulled out of his brother's widow. That's not exactly masturbation to most people. Well, that's the other thing in my Protestant tradition. We were totally fine with birth control, forms of birth control that did not kill a fetus, condoms, mm. all that kind of thing. That was fine in my tradition. So again, it was a little different than what you often find in, in the Catholic line of things. Um, so what, what about biology? You talked about sentiments. Mm -hmm. There is at root some basic biological stuff going on. I mean, basically sex is for biologically came about primarily for reproductive reasons. So how do you relate the biology of sex to uh, your previous points? It's a good question. Um, so our species is a little unique in terms of our sexual proclivities. So there are many species, uh, I'm thinking of like some forms of insects that mate once and one of the partners dies and the reproduction, the new ones come along. Uh, there are many species where they have sex once every couple of years, the reproduction happens. Um, our species has sex a lot, and very few of those times are for reproduction. I think I've heard a statistic that it's like one in 6,000 reproductive acts, sex result in live birth. It's not, if it's for reproduction in sort of this strong sense, biology has done a bad job, right? If the function is reproduction, like you wouldn't expect it to be one in 6,000 sex acts per live birth. Uh, there's a strong element of pleasure in sex. And most people, it just as a matter of fact, pursue sex for the pleasure of it. Um, and there's even, I mean, so there's, if the function of uh, sex, if the only function of sex is reproduction, then you have a lot of explaining to do. For example, uh, why does the clitoris exist? Right. Like, what is that thing for? It's uh, very hard to understand that the function is reproduction because it doesn't in any way factor into reproduction. That's complicated. The, the glands penis has the coronal ridge. Why is that there if it's for reproduction? Right. So there's some evidence that the function of the, the, the coronal ridge of the glands penis is to displace semen. Well, why would that be there if the function of the penis is just to inseminate and, and be for reproduction? That doesn't make any sense. Why is the uh, why are there seminal crypts in the uh, the cervical mucus? That doesn't make any sense if it's merely for reproduction. There's a ton of biological facts you need to start explaining away if you take this tack that the function of, of sex is reproduction. Our biology actually doesn't support that theory. Uh, our biology, I mean, obviously one of the functions of sex is reproduction. I mean, no one would deny that. It's one of the things that can happen. And, and most of us take measures to prevent that if we don't want children or don't want them presently, right? But uh, this idea that there is a unitary function of sex uh, really comes out of uh, the Catholic tradition in, in Thomas, right? Thomas Aquinas, uh, 
that was one of the arguments that this is the unitary function of sex. This is what God intended sex to be for reproduction. And so any non-reproductive act is uh, sin, right? Because it's going against God's will. Uh, if you look at the actual biology of humans, it doesn't support the doctrine, right? It doesn't support the doctrine that that's the function of sex. And in fact, if we look at the way people actually have sex in the world, we would have to conclude that the primary function of sex is pleasure. And one little uh, factoid from your book is that we tend to have sex, humans, much longer than other primates. I don't remember the details, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, many primates have sex for less than a minute. Um, the average human copulates for uh, not for the entire sexual experience, but just merely the copulatory act for three and a half to five minutes. So it, much, much longer. If it was merely for reproduction, you know, you'd want to get in there, get out as quickly as possible. Um, and I mean, I mean, literally, like, so if you think of evolutionarily in, in the past, being stuck in a mating act is a very compromised position. And if a predator or an enemy were to come upon you, you're not exactly in, in a position to fight or flee, right? Uh, you are doing the third F. Uh, so it's not a great idea if, if really the only function is to for reproduction for it to last so long, right? We are very vulnerable in that moment. Well, I hear tell that some people also appreciate foreplay. So yeah, no, I think even that's... much, much longer than the, you know, the actual getting it on. So, yeah, yeah. Most for most people, uh, in, in fact, even foreplay for most people is longer than the actual sexual act. Right. So the lead up is often the, the biggest element of time there. Maybe even some cuddling afterward. You would hope. I, I, I hear I hear stories about things like this. Um, <laughs> okay, let's. <laughs> It, in The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand writes, to say I love you, one must first know how to say the I. I take it you broadly agree with this. What does that mean? I, I strongly agree with it. Uh, so in order to love someone, you need to have a sense of who you are and your values. And you need to, to understand, I mean, you need to be living in some ways and examine life, as Socrates says. Uh, when we don't know who we are or what we value, we're going to enter into relationships uh, that are not going to be very good. And I guess an even stronger point is that we won't be able to actually experience love. So there's an entire chapter in my book about love, but let me say just real briefly, if love is a response to values, and I argue that it is at length, if we don't have a clear sense of ourselves and our values, we literally can't experience love. Now, I don't want to argue that we don't have any related feelings. So we might uh, feel sexual arousal. Uh, we might feel infatuation. We might feel something that might be proto-love. But to, I would want to reserve the, the word love for something richer and deeper and uh, not that would be impossible without understanding it in terms of our value responses and um, and all these things. And I mean, in the book, I argue that, you know, lo true love, love as we want to understand the rich sense involves a lot of different elements that people don't necessarily always associate it with. Uh, one of the elements I, I, I talk about the co-internalization of values. So it, when you have deep, uh, rich, erotic love for someone, you not only value them as you might value a friend. So like I value John as a friend, um, but I value my wife uh, and I also incorporate her ends, her values as my ends. So our goals and our life projects should align. And when things go well for her, things go well for me uh, for that reason. Um, 
so there's a lot of depth to to what it is to be uh, for love and i think that ayn rand is right about that and i strongly think she's right about that so do you think this is a fair way to summarize it if you have a, a if you have a strong sense of self and a good sense of your values and what's important to you you will in the right context naturally incorporate the interests of other people friends and your romantic partner as part of your value package let's say yeah and you know love is slightly more complicated so if we talk merely about our sort of explicit uh, and even implicit values we won't really understand love and i mean i hear people sometimes say you know i want i'm trying to find friends and we share all these values but i just i don't like the guy there's more to human experiences uh, than just do we share values i mean so our existential orientation our personality our our hobbies there's a lot that goes into making a person and if those things don't align well the relationship is probably not going to work very well or friendship or whatever it is it, it's more than just uh, our explicit or implicit values okay so you touched on this point previously but i want to focus on it because i think it's really underappreciated and that is the way that our emotions are not primary and i i was recently reading some commentary on david hume and so I was, I've been thinking about this, but our emotions are not primaries and not built into us biologically. The capacity is, but the particular emotional responses are not. They're in, in, in a fundamental way, rising from or dependent on our judgments. So I thought maybe you could go into that in a little bit more detail because I just think a lot of people miss that point or don't quite, don't understand its importance. Yeah. So this is, it's a really interesting topic. And the topic in some ways starts 2,500 years ago with Aristotle. So one of Aristotle's insights, uh, and he didn't really develop a theory of emotions, but Aristotle talks about anger. Uh, and he talks about, we can go wrong with anger. We can have it into the wrong degree, to the wrong person in the wrong way. Um, and he starts to articulate this theory that our emotions are responses to our beliefs in some ways. And it's not that well elaborated in Aristotle. The Stoics, just, just a little bit uh, later than Aristotle, um, really took this idea. I, don't, I legitimately don't know if they got it from Aristotle or not, but the Stoics did a much better job developing this idea uh, that our emotions are responses to our beliefs, and it's one of the strongest elements that unites the Stoics. Um, now, I don't agree broadly with the Stoics uh, into the sense uh, that they, they largely advocate this idea of apatheia, so... Um, the reason they had so much insight into emotions is they wanted to get rid of them, right? So that I don't like. Uh, to sense that they endorse ataraxia or just contentment, that part I think is pretty good. So in the 1950s, psychology was a mess and it was, psychology was new. It had started in the late, uh, like let's say 1900-ish with Freud really brought psychology, created as a field. It used to be part of natural philosophy and medicine. Uh, Freud did not understand emotions at all, and he thought really that it was about having sex with our, our mom or dad or losing our penis or whatever. Uh, his theories make no sense, uh, so I'm not going to delve into them. In the 1950s, a man named Al Albert Ellis was reading the Stoics. He was a psychiatrist, and he realized that the Stoic account of emotions um, it made a lot more sense than all this weird penis mother talk that Freud had done. Uh, Ellis took that insight and created the modern cognitive movement in psychology. So he created a system called REBT, uh, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, 
um, that didn't really take off, but it influenced another man uh, named Aaron Beck. Aaron Beck uh, was also a psychiatrist, also sort of dissatisfied with Freud in, in modern psychology. Uh, and Beck found Ellis and he's like, oh my God, like this makes sense. Uh, Beck is the father of CBT, which is still the dominant uh, psychological paradigm. That's cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy. And that's yeah, that what or, you, or, or, you favor too? I do. Well, I, I strongly favor like the, the broad cognitive models. Um, although working, I do sex therapy. So when I hear CBT, it either means that or cock and ball torture. I never know which. So <laughs> anyway, uh, this insight that our emotions are responsive to our, our values and beliefs fundamentally changed the practice of modern psychology. And without this insight, psychology would still be in the dark Freudian era. Um, so when I throw my hat in the ring of our emotions, our responses, our values and belief, all of psychology basically does that at this point too. Like it's, this is the new paradigm and it works, right? We can, we can treat things that we never used to be able to treat much more effectively. We can help people understand, uh, we even were very complicated sentiments like anxiety come from in terms of their values and beliefs and, and automatic thoughts. And um, yes, I, I strongly endorse the idea that our emotions are not irreducible primaries. Um, so all of our emotions can be understood if we look right beneath the surface. Now, our emotions are automatic. So whatever beliefs we internalize and, and hold as our own, um, our emotions will respond to those. So our emotions aren't um, they can be discordant, right? So our emotions, if we have discordant values and beliefs, our emotions can respond to some of the discordant ones and we can have emotions that are wrong for us. Um, our emotions aren't rational or irrational. Our emotions proceed inexorably from the premises we hold, right? So there aren't good and bad emotions per se. Our emotions are our way of experiencing the reality of our value judgments for better or worse. Okay, so there seems to be I'm totally on board with what you're saying. That was helpful. At the same time, there seems to be some, there, there's definitely something biological going on underneath the surface. For example, I think some people can be more prone, whatever it is, genetically hormonal imbalances to depression, maybe mm -hmm. anxiety. Um, but on the other hand, that doesn't overwhelm the point you just made. So how does that, how does the, those sorts of biological underpinnings fit into what, what you just said? It's a really good question, and it's an incredibly complicated question. Uh, let me give you just a gloss on it, because an actual answer would take the rest of the interview. Uh, basically, our biology, uh, so you're asking about temperament, um, and temperament is a biological thing that disposes us in certain directions. Um, there's some evidence that, for example, happiness has a set point that people return to for better or worse. So if they, really good things happen to you, you return to it over time. If really bad things happen to you, you return to it over time. Whatever your temperament sort of calls for. Um, yeah, so it's basically a disposition towards certain things, but not. Uh, it's not fully causal. We can override uh, temperament. We can change temperament. Um, it's a very, very complicated, it's a good question, but very, very complicated. Uh, yes, that our temperamental baseline is going to, to factor in uh, sort of which ways we lean, but it doesn't change the ways that emotions work, right? So they work one way, even if we sort of are biologically disposed one way or another. Okay. 
So it's a really wanna... good question, but not, not an easy one. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, which is why, you know, people have jobs in psychology and psychotherapy. Yeah. yeah so, actually, there's an entire area of psychology about temperament and, and sort of this question. It's an entire research field. So, Well, let me just ask you this. So you, you focus on psychotherapy. Are there cases, I assume this would be the case, there are cases where you would just say, look, I'm going to refer you to somebody who's more uh, in tune with the drugs of this, because maybe the pro- maybe some particular problem is more a matter of, you know, hormones or maybe your thought, your thyroid is, mm-hmm. is imbalanced or something like that versus yes. i mean at some point you can tell is this something we can work on with cognitively or is it something that is more biological another super complicated question uh so broadly we call that distinction the neurogenic psychogenic distinction so whether it's uh, the mind cause uh, or brain caused it is not an easy question so uh, let's take something like obsessive compulsive disorder. Obsessive compulsive disorder is a a malformation in the brain. I don't want to get into like all the details of it, but it leads people to do certain actions. Um, One of the insights in terms of how to treat that, uh, this guy, I'm blanking on his name, Schwartz or Schwartzman, uh, developed this this behavioral way of treating it. And part of what we found is that, that that way of acting and thinking actually changes the physical structure of the brain over time. So when you talk about psychogenic neurogenic distinction, it's helpful in some ways and unhelpful in others. Depression has, so when someone starts to be depressed, um, it's usually for psychogenic reasons and, but that causes neurogenic changes and the neurogenic changes can perpetuate what was originally a psychogenic change. so even if you give someone antidepressants to reverse the, psycho, the neurogenic changes, if the psychogenic changes aren't changed, when they stop the antidepressants, they might just go back to being depressed, right? Because now you're not blocking that response anymore. Uh, so another really, really good question, but it's not an easy one to answer. The distinction is not always clear. Uh, the mind and body are not two distinct things. They're, we are one integrated unit. And uh, the more we learn about psychology and psychiatry, the more that just becomes abundantly clear that you can't split those things apart. And to the extent that we try, we often uh, we reduce our humanity in sort of substantial ways. Okay. Well, I'll try to bring, bring us around more squarely to sex. Which is You're asking about. really good questions, but no, it's, it's interesting. And I can see how, you know, in your line of work, it would be, I mean, it's not, I think maybe the lesson is don't, assume that something has a simplistic answer. I mean, we're extremely complex beings and there can be a lot going on in terms of our ideas, some underlying biological factors. I mean, it's just really complicated, I think is it is. Yeah. what I quickly get out of that. So you mentioned the Christian take on sex and you mentioned the Stoics briefly, but you go through four schools of thought that you think have basically a negative impact on our views of sex. So I thought maybe you could just say a couple of words about these. And you, so you mentioned Plato, mm-hmm. the Stoics, a different side of the Stoics that you mentioned previously, the Christians, which we've discussed, and then Kant. So do you want to say a word about the ones that we haven't discussed? Uh, sure. So the Stoics in general are not big fans of sex. Uh, there are different schools of Stoicism. So I'm not going to try to capture everyone and, and anyone who's an expert on Stoics is going to know I'm, I'm glossing over a bunch. But 
broadly, the goal of the Stoics is apatheia and a sort of uh, indifference to the external world. Their goal is the cultivation of virtue and uh, internal character dispositions and no emphasis at all on external achievement, other people, uh, the impacts of things. Um, so it's a little complicated, but obviously sex is an external, right? Sex is not internal to us and sex messes up our apathy or, or ataraxia, contentment, depending on which school of stoicism. Sex is a very strong emotion and uh, they are not big fans of strong emotion. So broadly speaking, the Stoics weren't big fans of sex. Um, Plato, Plato is the source of, of much of the sex ne negativity in the world. Um, and I also believe one of the biggest sources of what we think of as Christianity nowadays. But Plato, different parts of Plato have been taken by different people and run with. So uh, in the symposium, for example, one of the stories Plato's tells, so the symposium is a drinking party. There's all these philosophers uh, in the story that are sitting around drinking. And one of the stories they tell is what's come to be known as platonic love. And this idea is that um, we start by, by having love and lust for one beautiful person. But if we're doing it right, we should abstract from one person to many, right? So we under, start to understand what it means to be a beautiful person and then start to understand beauty more generally, beautiful art, uh, beautiful customs, beautiful laws, and eventually keep abstracting until we get to the beautiful itself. This is his idea of, of forms. Um, to the extent that we stay focus on a beautiful person, a particular instantiated person with a body, uh, we're focusing on the wrong things. We're focusing on this prison uh, of the flesh. We're focusing on this corporeal world that's merely an illusion of the real world of the forms. And that's to him a very fundamental mistake. So Plato was not a fan of sex. Platonic love is, is, is a synonym for sexless love for this reason. And that comes out of the symposium. There's other myths that Plato created. So Plato also created the myth of soulmates. So this is actually a very common conception today. Most people don't know it, it comes from Plato. Uh, Plato has this idea, and I think it's in the Phaedrus, um, it, it, the reference in the book, but this idea, he's trying to understand like why we seem to seek out other people and form couples. And so he tells a story and he, he realizes it's a myth. So I'm not trying to, to, to take him to task for that, but it's a really pernicious and bad myth, but the myth he tells is of the proto-humans, and the proto-humans were these, these terrible monsters, and they had four arms, and four legs, and two sets of genitals, and one head with two faces, and they were too powerful. They made an assault on the gods in Mount Olympus, and uh, after they were rebuffed by the gods, Zeus decided to split them each in half. So there were male-male ones, male-female, and female-female, uh, and that actually explains uh, the idea of um, of soulmates, right? We actually are literally looking for the other half of our proto-human self. And I mean, it was nice that he included the male, 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 uh, female, female, like he was trying to be, trying to really understand that in some ways, but that never happened. And so when we look for our other half, we're looking for this mythological thing that, that never existed. That paradigm is incredibly destructive. People often, um, you know, they, they, they jump relationship to relationship, like, oh, if this was really my soulmate, like, I wouldn't have to work at it, it would be easy, it'd be effortless. Uh, love is real love. Real relationships are not always easy and effortless. They take hard work sometimes. They take uh, complicated conversations. Sometimes there's even fights, and that's the real world. Relationships can be a little messy. 
that doesn't mean that we can't get to a place where there aren't any fights or that there we can't just be content but that often there's there are challenges in relationships and that doesn't mean the relationships are bad it doesn't mean that we failed to find our soulmate it just means that look sometimes relationships are hard work and if we take that paradigm we're going to take any sign of working at the relationship to be a sign that we failed to find the right person and that is incredibly pernicious how uh, would you let me interrupt you on that particular point because that's that's a big one and i think and i think that's important do you think it'd be fair to say that there's a healthy way to view a soulmate, which is something is a relationship that you work at and create like soulmates are made, not just out there waiting for you. And we could have a soulmate, you know, like there's not just one person that I can have a healthy marriage with, but it, it might just be the person that I happen to find and then build a relationship with. And so is there a sense that we can look at a soulmate in that sense, something, a, a created relationship as opposed to, you know, this one magical person out there that God put down there for us. For, and, the, and if we can't be happy unless we find that one person. So yes, if we strip away everything soulmate means, we can call them soulmates. But then it's not clear to me why we're going to use that term, which harkens back to this very pernicious view. I, I hear what you're saying. But I, I think in, in common language, people often use, oh yeah, my spouse is my soulmate. Just meaning we've built up this very healthy relationship. So is there some kind of preferred, I mean, if we're not going to use the same term, is there something, how would you, I, I think it's nice to just have a, a label on that where, where you just, you're really getting along well in your marriage. You're working at it. Yes, but it's going well, right? You don't, it doesn't always feel like a struggle. You, you enjoy it. You're both happy in the marriage, you know, things are clicking. So how would you, what, is there a word or a label or how would you describe that? If not soulmate? Well, I would just call it a good erotic relationship. Um, I mean, I spent an entire chapter talking about, well, what does a, a good erotic relationship look like? And I guess my resistance to the idea is it does, it's going to necessarily, the term is necessarily a platonic term. And but yes, we can strip away everything that's in there, but it's like people use the word altruism to mean being nice to other people sometimes. Like, yeah, if you strip away everything that makes that term unique, then you can call it whatever the fuck you want, but it's... <laughs> Okay, you've you've lost the core of the idea and you're just using the sound now i don't i don't think that that's a great move i mean i think that philosophical and conceptual clarity it goes a long way to helping us to think more clearly and to engage with the world in better ways and when we're we're borrowing these terms that are i think profoundly destructive like i just don't I don't think it's advised. And I'm not saying that like you're making a radical mistake and you need to change what you say, but I do think it's it's a little dangerous and it it minimally helps to perpetuate this myth that is hurting other people. Okay. I think that's helpful to me. I think one with me, I think that I was just never it never struck me as plausible that there's that one magic person out there. And so I just never took soulmate to mean that. But I think it's really helpful to understand sort of his, how that term arose historically, because I think that I probably was a little, was, was kind of blending these categories myself. And I think probably other people do that to even a greater extent. And I can see how that could be really damaging if you think, oh, I, I have to work in my marriage. She must not be my soulmate or he must not be my soulmate because yeah. it's, it's work and we're, hey, we had a fight, you know, and so I can see how that could be really destructive of a potential what you could turn into a really healthy relationship mm -hmm. if you expect it to just come come at you from the world from your soulmate 
Um, right. So that yeah. I think that that's... And a lot of people make that mistake. It's very common, in fact. Right. Well, now that you discuss it and I see it in the book, yeah, I'm I'm start, starting to dawn on me how important it is to to make the kind of distinctions you're you're talking about. Um, but I kind of got you off a little bit. We were going with the play. We were going from Plato, and and then we did the Stoics. We we kind of already did Christianity, but I wondered if you wanted to say something about Kant, who's a more sure. recent thinker and who is I, I would sort say sort of platonic seeming in his his approach to sex yes i would actually say kant is more sex negative than plato if you can believe that uh so this is kind of a controversial point but i agree with nietzsche that kant is a couch christian and that what kant did is he tried to just take christian ethics and secularize them um which didn't really work because he ends up with the idea of perfect duty and heaven needing being necessary to justify all the sacrifice but We'll just leave that aside. Kant thinks that sexuality is absolutely a corruption of human nature. He says that, for example, uh, masturbation is worse than suicide because suicide merely ends your life, uh, whereas masturbation totally corrupts your person. Uh, so I guess I don't really feel like I need to say much more than that because he is not pro-sex uh, in any way. Uh, he has a very complicated uh, view of sex and it's almost entirely negative. Um, so, yeah, I mean, not, he was not a fan of sex. Yeah. I, I, it'd be interesting to, I wonder how modern Christianity has also been influenced by the Kantian line of things. It seems to be more today's Christianity in terms of sex, at least tends to be more platonic. Um, but I wonder if, I mean, Kant just seems so bizarre and wild to me, but I wonder yeah. if there are actually people who are negatively influenced by those sorts of ideas. Um, it's possible. It's not one of the areas of, of Kant that's like really talked about much. Like Kant was a capitalist and Kant thought free trade was the best way. And no one talks about that view of Kant, right? Like that's, I mean, I, I realize there are some people who talk about it, but in general, Kant scholarship just glosses right over that part of Kantianism. Um, in the sexuality too, I mean, it's just so absurd and wrong that people don't really make much hay out of it. Uh, there's some interesting questions. I mean, Kant was a man who uh, was incredibly rigid in his thinking. Uh, he was incredibly rigid in his life. He would take a walk at the exact same time every day. The story, apocryphal or not, is that you could set your, your clocks by Kant's walks because he would walk the same route at the same time at the same pace every day. Uh, he may or may never have left the small town in Germany in which he was born, Konigsberg. Uh, who knows if he ever had sex? And uh, I'm not sure he's the best source of, you know, sexual information. I don't know to what extent he influenced uh, modern um, religious views. And I mean, in, there's a real sense in which they're working from the same premises, the same platonic premises that sex is ne necessarily a corrupting influence. It, it uh, taints the soul, uh, that it traps us in the prison of the flesh. So, I mean, I think in, if anything, he just purified uh, their, the abstinent camp's view, the, the Augustinian view. Uh, I, I think Kant basically runs with that. I mean, I think he, Kant would basically agree with Augustine, Augustine's view of sex. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So we've made this point, but I just want to hit this again because it's this is another important one. You, I think a lot of people view sexual repression, which can be just feeling guilty about it all the way to abstinence, as at the opposite end of a spectrum as sexual hedonism. Mm -hmm. And so they say, 
And so a lot of people are thinking, well, you can go to one or the other, or you can be kind of in the middle. And you're suggesting that that's the wrong way to look at it. It's not like that's the spectrum we're on. Mm -hmm. And so is it fair to say that your alternative is something like value centered, healthy eroticism, something like that? I mean, is that how you would, but it, it's not like you're on that spectrum. You're though it's, you know, those are both bad and both sort of variants of each other in a certain way and that they're not taking sex seriously as we should. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something totally different from both of those things that you're wanting us wanting us to point to. Is that how you would put it? I would. Yeah. So the spectrum I would put them on is the dualistic spectrum. And I would say that the resistant and abstinent camp are on the, the dualist spectrum, but they favor the soul and uh, hedonism is on the dualistic spectrum and favors the body. Uh, I think dualism is wrong. So I'm not on that spectrum in any way. Uh, my approach is really different. My approach is to think about, look, if we want to live a good and rich, happy human life, we're going to need to cultivate certain aspects of our character, certain virtues. We're going to need to think about our values and to be clear about our paths at like a, a central purpose in life. For most of us, our constitutions are such that sex is going to be a valuable part of our lives. And without it, most of us could not be happy. Not, not everyone. I mean, certain people are constituted such that they don't need this. So those people are going to not fall under this. Most of us, most, the vast majority need some kind of, of sexuality in our lives. And my goal is to get people to think critically about the ways in which they integrate it. Are the ways that they integrate sex, are they, are they pro-life? Are they anti-life? Are, uh, are they integrating sex into their life in healthy ways? Are they cultivating good dispositions or bad ones? Are they uh, being kind and fair to their partners? Are they always seeking enthusiastic consent if possible? Are they uh, open-minded? Are they, are they cultivating a sexual character that is good or not? And these are important questions that a lot of people just don't ask because the history of sexuality, the sexual ethics in particular, has not encouraged these questions. It says either you know, resist it in these various ways or just go hog wild, but not let's have these sort of interesting and nuanced conversations about what does it mean to integrate sex and sexuality into a good human life? And that's the goal of what I want to do. And whether or not I succeed in doing it in my book, and I, I hope that I do, but I want to change the conversation to that conversation. Let's leave dualism behind. Let's just forget about that. It's nonsense. It comes from these weird metaphysical positions. That's not what we are. We are integrated beings. So let's talk about, for most of us, if we want to integrate this into our lives, what is that going to look like? That's the conversation I think we should be having. Well, that's what I like about your approach is that you want to make it something that we positively think about ethically. Because I think a lot of people think, it's either something you have a lot of guilt over or you just don't even think about it. Like it's, it's out there, but it's not something you think about formally in terms of your ethical life. So I like the fact that you're bringing it front and center in terms of leading a good life. What does it mean to be a moral person and bringing that into it? So I think that that's, that's really helpful and better than what most people out there are doing. Yeah. It's, so, it's my, it's mind blowing. So one of the things that strikes me just so strange is that, as I say, for most of us, sex is very important. And ethics has just not done a good job of accounting for this fundamental part of human nature. I mean, if you look at sexual ethics, that term means like, let's talk about abortion. Like, 
how is that for most people, most people, one, are probably not going to have an abortion in their life. And two, it's not going to be the defining thing of their life. It's, you know, Rand talks about the ethics of emergencies and trying to have philosophical paradigms on, on emergency cases, fringe cases. That's not the way we, ethics should be done. Ethics should be done. Like, look, what does a real human life look like? What is our life actually like? Those are the kind of questions we should be asking, not these fringe questions. Um, I'm not saying the questions about abortion are, are unimportant, but they sure is. They are not core questions of sexual ethics. They are fringe questions of sexual ethics. And the question that faces most of us in our real lives is, how am I going to integrate sex in my life in healthy ways? And that's the conversation is not being had. Okay. That's good. I'm, that's, that's good stuff, man. Thanks. So next, next though, were Romeo and Juliet in love? <laughs> uh short answer no uh it's an interesting question um so you know i talk about Romeo and juliet in the book uh in the chapter on love uh, in terms of one of the mistaken paradigms we've actually covered most of them at this point i talk about them as sort of being the exemplars of this paradigm of desperate longing um which is i think a very dangerous paradigm in so they're just one example of the paradigm but in in this book uh shakespeare tells the story of these two families in Verona, uh, the Capulets and you know, whatever, it's unimportant. Uh, they, Romeo and Juliet, right? They're families. Uh, so they meet, uh, Juliet's 13, Romeo might be 16, 18 tops. Uh, they are children and they, uh, they're immediately sexually attracted to each other. They may, may at best have an existential attraction based on their existential orientations. They fall in love, which again, I don't think it's love yet. Uh, they make a series of really terrible choices and they both commit suicide. Uh, that is just profoundly a bad way to think about love on, on all fronts. I also, you know, I don't think it's love. I think that our sort of sentimental reactions, including sexual attraction, is the starting point, right? So when I see someone, let's say I'm single in a bar and I'm like, oh, she's very attractive that's not love at first sight. That is, I want to find out more about her. I mean, we used to call this limerence or um, and some people call it like new relationship energy, but this is excitement to get to know someone and find out about them and connect with them. That's a very valuable and, and fun time, but it's not yet love, right? Love is love is more stable. Love is, is integrating people into our lives, creating a shared life together, uh, sharing experiences, integrating our values. Love is, takes work. And that, that initial reaction might be the first couple steps on the path to love, but it's not yet love. And so holding these two suicidal teenagers up as the, the paradigm of love is a fundamental misunderstanding on my view. Would you also relate that idea to sort of this medieval view that you can long for this woman at a distance or love someone, even if it's unrequited for years on end, is that sort of the same in the same category? It's very similar, but it's also, uh, and I, I don't in any way talk about this in my book, it's why I don't use the term romantic love because I didn't want to tie into the romantic tradition of the middle ages of like courtly love and longing and unrequited love. I didn't want to tie into that tradition. And it's actually why I use the term erotic love. The book doesn't mention that anywhere, but that's, that's why. Okay. Yeah. I didn't, that, I didn't pick up on that. So this is a little bit complicated, so you can punt <laughs> if you want, but I, you mentioned something called, you call the triaxial scale of gender orientation. 
Yeah. Now that's a lot, but I'm wondering if you want to try to briefly summarize what you're getting at with that. So it's a good question. It is a complicated question. So people often think that sexual orientation is binary. Um, you are either straight or gay. So that was the sort of original view. Then we opened up like, well, some people are attracted to both. It may be a transitional state, but let's call those, I don't know, bisexuals. So now we got three. That doesn't really track the reality of human sexual experience. Uh, there are things such as cont contextual homosexuality. So what contextual homosexuality is, is you're in a certain context, like a prison, a boarding school, uh, whatever, and you engage in sexual interactions that are, are wrong for your orientation. And then once you leave the context, you never do again, right? So how are we going to classify those people? Let's sweep them under the rug. Uh, what about people who are, are straight, but sometimes they see, uh, let's say it's a straight man and he sees another man, he's, he's like, oh yeah, but he doesn't ever act on it. Is that a, a perfect a heterosexual? Nah, sweep that under the rug. Uh, what about people who are attracted to both, but, but lean heavily to one sex or the other? Mm, let's sweep that under the rug. Uh, so it gets really complicated. And Part of what I'm responding to, so Alfred Kinsey in the 1950s saw those complications got swept under the rug. He's like, well, let's not sweep those under the rug. Let's try to figure out if we can capture them. So Kinsey has a scale from zero to six, where zero is a perfect heterosexual and six is a perfect homosexual and three is in the dead center, so three is a perfect bi. Uh, that scale does a much better job of capturing the reality of human sexual attraction and desire there are many, many people who are ones and fives who they're probably going to spend their entire life being, looking like a perfect heterosexual, perfect homosexual, but they're going to sometimes have desires or maybe they're watching porn and they look at the wrong sex, but they're kind of like it, but, but that's all they ever do, right? And Kinsey wanted to capture that. And Kinsey did a really good job creating a scale uh, that does. So part of the impetus for the Traxo scale was to try to capture a little more than Kinsey did. Right, so that's why there's three axes instead of just the two. Um, the goal is to try to better capture the reality of human sexual experience. And I don't want to say the scale is perfect, like I'm not sure it is, but the goal is to more accurately look out at the world and see what is going on out there and look at the world itself and not our theoretical constructs. When we, when we see the world through merely our theoretical constructs, we're going to miss a lot of reality. And we're going to try to pigeonhole the things we, we see into these, these boxes and they're not really going to fit. And people are going to try to fit themselves into these boxes. They don't really fit. And it's going to cause a ton of complications. It's going to cause people to live worse lives than they might otherwise. I mean, even biology is more complicated than people think. I mean, people talk about you're either male or female, you're either XX or XY, and that is not accurate medically. Right? So there are, are XXXs, there are XXYs, XYY, there are people who are XY who look like an XX, right? So an XY would usually be a male, but because of an androgen insensitivity, they never get masculinized. So they actually are a perfect female. Um, the reality of this is, is so much more complicated than people try to gloss over. And so when we use these theoretical constructs, to look at the world, we're going to try to pigeonhole everyone into these boxes that, that may not match reality. One of my goals, whether I've achieved it or not, has always been to look at the world for what it is and try to understand it on its own terms first before I use any kind of theoretical constructs. And that was the goal of the, the Traxial scale. Okay, so one reason it's it's so interesting is be, is to see the cultural shifts 
So younger people, the idea that there's gay marriage is like, yeah, duh, of course. But me growing up being, you know, being born in the seventies, this was a huge cultural shift over the course of my life's lifespan. And it seemed, of course, there was a whole lot of activism and legal work going up to this. But then I can't remember the exact year, but it wasn't that long ago, right? The Supreme Court legalized nationwide gay mm-hmm. marriage. That was a, a huge sudden shift. Again, again, it, there was a, decades of activism and legal work leading up to this. But it, it was still something that I could see within my lifetime. So it seemed to go from everybody who's not perfectly heterosexual or uh, is is sort of bad or suspect or out mm-hmm. and then then there was a shift in my life where okay gay people okay we can see okay there's homosexual heterosexual and homosexual now mm-hmm. but now it seems to me that there's a secondary shift or or development where we're saying okay even saying we can't even fit everybody into the heterosexual homosexual camp there's something a little bit more complicated going on. And that seems to be what you're getting at here. And it seems to be what generally is, is the trend in the culture in terms of looking, you know, looking at the world and people's sexual lives. Yeah. So I think you're right. And, you know, a lot of these things, although the cultural change happened recently, rely on events, uh, people putting themselves out there like Kinsey, um, you know, Kinsey was in the 50s and he changed the conversations around sexuality, uh, the Stonewall riots where uh, gay people were like, listen, maybe we don't want to be beat up anymore. Uh, that was a major turning point for, for getting these issues out into the news. So many things happened. And I think you're right that we are becoming more open and accepting of people who are not living the same lives we are, who fall outside of the normal distribution, and I mean normal just as a purely statistical term with no moral baggage on it, um, because people, so the, the normal human in merely statistical terms is heterosexual. Uh, probably not a Kinsey zero though, right? There's probably a lot of them that are Kinsey ones, but, but they're heterosexual and they're going to live those lives. And as we start to think more about the nuanced reality of human expression, so you know, let's say that I'm a heterosexual man. Let's say that my attraction to women is like uh, five out of six. I'm really attracted to women. My attraction to men is like, let's say a one and my attraction to others, like a one, like I'm going to look like a heterosexual, like a classic heterosexual, uh, but I'm not strictly speaking a Kinsey zero. I'm not strictly speaking a heterosexual. Um, there's more going on there. And I think as we start, so one of the goals of Traxial Scale was to make it easier to communicate the richness of our actual sexual desires and expressions um, and to capture just the reality that people don't fit into these three categories of straight, gay, and bi perfectly. And it was, the goal was to capture a little bit more than Kinsey did with the Kinsey scale. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Things are getting better in a lot of ways and I hope that that trend continues. The trend has been a little cyclical, and as things get better, then there's pushback, and it gets better, and there's pushback, and I hope that, broadly speaking, people start to accept uh, that other people can live their life however they want. Um, as someone who is, is a strong advocate of liberty, and I know you are too, uh, I don't care how people live their lives. If they're not violating other people's rights, live it however you want, right? And 
that's, I think, the position we need to move to. And as we start to understand these things better, I think that'll help some people uh, who do want to control other people's behavior to understand that maybe these kind of lives are, are okay. Maybe these people are not, uh, while they're statistical uh, variation, they're, they're well within the normal human experience. And uh, I, I hope that we start to take a more nuanced view of the reality of the sexual lives. Well, just anecdotally, I'm, I live in Colorado and our governor is a gay man. He's married, he has children. And we have a state legislator who is a transgender woman. And what surprised me, there was some politics, there was some attacks on their gender orientation, but it wasn't much, right? It wasn't really a big deal. They were basically just running on the issues. Here's my political platform. And people were basically evaluating them based on their political ideas. And I thought that was, it was just, it just struck me. It's like, wow, that's, that's interesting. That really shows a, a big cultural shift, certainly within my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, which is, I think the right way. I mean, I don't, I'm also opposed to the view that like our sexual orientation should dominate our identity. Like, I don't think that's the right view either. Like these are politicians. It doesn't matter if they're straight or trans or queer or whatever. Do they have good political views? That's really the only question voters should be asking. Right. Good. Okay. So I thought we would shift a bit into some more advice type of questions. Okay. So we are still in the middle of a once in a century pandemic which has caused a lot of shifts in people's, the way people live, a lot of isolation. And I'm wondering if you're seeing this manifest in your work in terms of creating problems for people's relationships or actually improving people's relationships in certain ways. So I haven't seen it impact relationships a ton. Um, But so the other thing I do, I'm a trauma specialist. So I, I work with people who have been traumatized, who might have PTSD or, or other traumas, especially disorders uh, or mood disorders and all sorts of things. The general people I'm seeing are doing a little more poorly than usual because of the additional stressors of the pandemic. Uh, many people's financial lives are very much up in the air. Uh, many people don't have stable employment right now or, or sometimes even stable housing. And these additional stressors, or even just the pandemic itself, is causing uh, mental health to decline in sort of marked ways, and people are not coping very well with that. Um, so, yeah, it's it's been hard for everyone. Some people's relationships have actually been improved because part of what they need to do is spend some more time together, and now they can't do anything but that, right? So some people's relationships have gotten better. I think more of what I'm seeing is that it's it's hurting uh, people whose relationships maybe weren't super well grounded initially, who maybe uh, they didn't have as much of a connection as they, they thought they had. So they, you know, maybe it's, let's say they got together young, they were really sexually attracted to each other. The relationship was adequate, but as they start to get a little older and maybe the sex is fading a little bit and our bodies change as we get older and gravity and aging take its toll on us, some of the the attraction to each other starts to fade. And if your relationship is grounded entirely in your sexual attraction, you have a very precarious foundation for your relationship. And part of what we're seeing is people are starting to realize that, that their relationship foundation is not what they thought it was. Their relationship is not as strong or, or based in these sort of fundamental things. And so 
that's come to light in a way that I think a lot of people never really realized before. And that's causing some conflict and it's causing uh, my caseload to increase. Uh, so, well, I, I've, I've been really fortunate. We're stable financially in a stable marriage, but somebody going through, you know, getting fired or going even worse, going through a divorce or a serious breakup during this time, I, I really sympathize with those people because that would be a rough, that'd be a rough one during this period, especially not that For it's sure. never, I mean, it's always rough, but especially now it'd be just really challenging. Yeah. And I think that even with people in a really good relationship, if you are locked in with each other and you can't go anywhere, there's going to be some tension uh, just because you're constantly with each other. You're not talking to other humans or doing other things really besides seeing each other. And I think that's normal And a healthy relationship is going to be able to get through that uh, pretty easily. You know, you might be a fight here or there, a couple harsh words and you're like, I'm sorry, I was just a little, you know, this whole pandemic thing, we're in a weird world and, you know, it's not a big deal. It's when there's not really that strong foundation, that's when people start to get in trouble. And often people don't even realize that they should have a foundation to their relationship just besides their attraction to each other. So those are the people who are in danger, whether or not they realize it yet. Well, maybe as a silver lining, as people have more time sitting at home, they could read your book and try to, you know, try to seriously think through some of these major aspects of their life and see if they can make some shifts in a, in a better direction. So I want to talk about a basically a marriage where there's basically two ba two basically good people, hmm. but maybe there's just a compatibility issue. And is, is there any generalizations you can take or is it too marriage specific as to, well, is this something we can push through and work on and create a stronger relationship? Or are we just too incompatible and we need to cut ties and go our separate ways? And it's, it's not like you're a bad person, I'm a bad person. It's just, this isn't working and we're not meant for each other. Or, or we're not compatible and it's sufficiently compatible to make this work. How do you know the difference when you can, when you should work for it and when you should move on? It's a really good question. Uh, hard question. Uh, you're good at this. Uh, so it depends on how fundamental the incompatibility is. Um, and if it's in a fundamental human need, so Let's say that you have a relationship that's otherwise perfect, but there's a sexual incompatibility where one person has very strong kinks and more or less needs them to be sexually satisfied and the other person just refuses to participate. That relationship, if they don't separate or come to an agreement about opening the relationship, is probably going to fail due to cheating. Uh, the odds are against it. Part of one of the things that I want, people often talk about relationships as monogamy is a standard. And monogamy is great if it's a purposeful choice that you've entered into with a partner and you want to only have sex with each other uh, and have all of your emotional needs be met by one person. I think that's a great choice that people can make for it. But unfortunately, most people don't make that choice. They default into monogamy, whether or not they are naturally monogamous. And those people who don't know this about themselves often end up being unsatisfied because they aren't getting this need met that they may not even realize they have. And those people often end up cheating on their partners and they, they can't really understand why. And part of it is that they've defaulted into monogamy. And again, there's nothing wrong at all with monogamy if it's a purposeful choice that people have made for their relationship. 
but people often don't even ask these questions of should we be monogamous? Uh, what are your kinks? Uh, what are your proclivities? People don't have these conversations and these are conversations that should be had early in a relationship. Um, you know, what's gonna happen if, if my desire dries up because I, I'm in a really hard period at work? Are you, is that gonna be okay if it's a couple months or even a year or are you going to, are you going to leave me or cheat? Uh, do you at least share my kinks or find them acceptable? Could you get into them over time? Or are you repulsed by them? If you are having a disgust reaction to my kinks and I'm never gonna get that need met, that relationship's gonna have some pretty intense struggles. So to answer your, your question more directly, it depends on how fundamental the disconnect is, how well they realize what the disconnect is and whether they can address it. A lot of stuff can be worked through, especially if people are open-minded about the solutions. Um, Sometimes let's say that there's a fundamental incompatibility with kinks. Sometimes opening the relationship is a way to salvage a perfectly good relationship otherwise and for the person to get their needs met. Or maybe though people will watch pornography together of a certain kind, or maybe they'll just fantasize and role play. There are often solutions to these things, but a lot of people don't even realize what the actual problem is because they're not having these conversations around sex and the culture doesn't encourage people to talk about sex. So unless they end up with a good therapist who's, who's educated about sexuality, they may not even have that conversation with a therapist, right? And that's very problematic. Most therapists and psychologists have maybe one class on sexuality, and that is wholly inadequate in my view, especially for someone doing relationship work. That's interesting. So you're saying there could be purely sexual incompatibilities that could derail a relationship or that might cause reasonable people to say, you know, look, we're, we can be friends, but we need to look for our romantic lives elsewhere. Yes. And then there's also some non-sexual things, I assume, like one person just really wants a particular job in London and another person doesn't want to leave California or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I'm fortunate I haven't had to deal with these. <laughs> We've always found, uh, you know, my wife and I have always found ourselves to be fairly compatible, but I can, I'm just trying to envision the, the realm of things that might cause a, a couple to say, you know, we, we either need to work on this in a serious way and figure out how to make this work, or we need to have a serious talk about what our, our needs and values are. Yeah, it generally sex and money are the two big ones that are going to destroy a relationship if they're not adequately addressed. So, you know, people, some people are want to save and, and really work for retirement and, and invest. So people just want to spend, uh, including just spending on money, uh, spending themselves into debt on things they don't really need. And if those people get together, that relationship is doomed. Unless one of them can realize what's going on and change it and have the conversations, it's not going to work. They're always going to be frustrated with each other. And part of the problem is that we don't encourage people to have these hard conversations. We often, our culture really champions avoidance, especially with men, right? So we don't teach little boys how to, to access or talk about their feelings. I know like you know, I played football in high school and walk it off, suck it up, tough it up, uh, be a man, come on. Uh, and these things all mean don't feel, right? Don't have emotional reactions. And if, if we can't engage with our emotional lives, we're not going to be able to have these conversations at all. We're not, we're going to know we're frustrated or angry, maybe but we're not have any idea really why. If, if I could get people to change one thing that I think would make the world much better, it would be to stop avoiding our emotions. And I think that would go a super far away to making the world a better place and ending a lot of relationship conflict. So I have a couple of questions about children arising from your recent statements. Mm -hmm. So one, 
let's a lot of couples say say something like this well if, if we didn't have kids we'd get divorced because it's just not working but we have a kid or two and so we're going to stay together at least until they're 18 or something mm-hmm. when you hear people talk that way uh, what's your reaction because i could my my i don't know i mean is that ever an appropriate way to think about things or is that just generally like you need to step back and and realize that your kids can survive your kids would be better off with a healthy divorce than an unhealthy marriage or how do you, is there how do you look at those that kind of approach yes i agree with you okay all right um, so in general we get our model of relationships from our parents because it's one of the few relationships that we have sort of intimate access to. And if the relationship that we're modeling for our children is acrimonious, which is the worst case scenario, but even loveless and sort of more friendship, we're modeling a relationship that's not going to serve them well in their life. And we're showing them that this is the paradigm, whether that's our intention or not, that's what we're showing them. I think it's much healthier for children, for the parents to have a clean uh, congenial divorce into for each of them to find other partners that they can love and have good relationships with. Because one that models to children that we don't need to stay in bad relationships, we don't need to stay in, in loveless relationships, we can seek our happiness and be justified in seeking our happiness. Uh, and th- that is very, very valuable to teach them to, to that their lives don't matter that they should fundamentally sacrifice themselves and their happiness for someone else, even their children, is to teach a pattern of sacrifice in an unhealthy way of being to their children. And it's going to hurt them across the course of their lives. So, yeah, I agree. They should, they should divorce and they should each seek their own happiness and try to to find healthy relationships to model to their children. And if we made that shift as a culture, then there would be a lot less uh, acrimonious divorces because people wouldn't wait until it was unbearable to leave. And I think that's one of the reasons why we see such acrimonious divorces is people try to hold out for the kids and it doesn't usually work. And it usually just gets more and more bitter and entrenched and then it explodes. And I don't think it's the right thing to model for children. Okay. Um, darn it. I just had a follow-up and it left me. What was the, oh, oh, this goes back to what you were saying before is what I was going to say in that it's really important when you're starting your relationship and building your relationship to not push these problems under the rug to really have some serious conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, ideally you get your relationship in order and then have kids and not have kids in the middle of a really messy relationship. In fact, I've heard couples like they have kids to try to fix their relationship, but it's like, you're yeah. just asking for trouble at that point. No, get your marriage in shape or your relationship in shape first and then have kids if possible. I mean, you know, if you have kids already and then you find yourself in trouble, then make the, make the decision then. But the ideal is to have kids in the context of a relationship that's already working. So you don't even have to, you don't have to deal with that divorce aspect a few years down the road. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And the idea that we should do X to save the marriage where X is something radical, like have a child or open the relationship is going to fail. Like it just basically never works. I mean, I, I hear people sometimes come to couples counseling and they're like, relationship was on the rocks. We just try, decided to try swinging to spice it up. And it went to shit. It's like, okay, yeah, that's what I would expect would happen. Like you have to, if you're going to do that kind of stuff, you have to have an incredibly strong relationship with good communication and it's varsity level sex and not everyone gets to play at the varsity level. Okay. So my other question about children is, so I have a five-year-old. And so basically we watch a lot of biology documentaries. So he's aware of what sex is in terms of reproduction, animals reproduce. 
-hmm. and there's mommies and daddies and so on. Um, but at a certain point, we're gonna we're gonna have to have some more <laughs> detailed um, discussions there. And I know I my my general sense is that Europeans do a general a better job with sex education than Americans typically do. Do you have any general, I don't know if you talked with parents at all, or if you have any general advice for parents as they're trying to, you know, introduce their kids to a healthy view of sexuality, but at, a, at an age appropriate uh, mm -hmm. level? It's a really good question. Um, so the first thing I would say is that we have a fundamentally mistaken idea of sex and children. Uh, People think that children become sexual at adolescence, and that is not true. Uh, we have sonogram images of fetuses or uh, preborn children masturbating in the womb, right? They are touching their genitals and enjoying themselves. Children, uh, anyone with a toddler knows that if you take off their diaper, they're going to explore their genitals and they're going to do it for a while. And that is a great time for them. Uh, children will often uh, masturbate. I mean, it's proto-masturbation in a real sense, but touch our genitals and enjoy the simulation uh, from the earliest days, including in the womb. Children are sexual just as we are. Now, they're not sexually developed, and there's a good reason we say adults shouldn't have sex with them and sexually interact with them, right? There are many, many reasons for that, but they are themselves sexual. They want to know about their bodies. They want to know about other people's bodies. They want to learn these things. As, so first, this idea that children are not sexual, I just think it's wrong uh, for a lot of reasons. In terms of what we should do, uh, I think we should answer children's questions uh, truthfully, but only to the extent that they're able to ask them, right? So if children are like, uh, I heard this word sex, what is it? It's like, well, sex is something uh, that parents uh, have and they do it for lots of reasons, including pleasure and, and having children. And they'll be like, oh, but if they ask a follow-up, try to answer the question that they actually ask and try to pitch it to their level. I think that adults should use uh, the right terms for body parts. So I think it's like uh, we should use the term penis or vulva or vagina. It blows my mind how many adults don't know the difference between a vulva and a vagina. Like it just is mind blowing. Those are not the same thing at all. Uh, for any of the listeners, in case you don't know, the, the vulva is the external part and the vagina is the internal part. A lot of people don't know that. Actually, a lot of people don't know just basic sexual biology uh in basically no one knows sexual morphology um and if we teach our kids the right terms and in accurate information early on they'll better understand what's happening to them they'll better understand uh what's happening to other people they'll better understand how to ask questions and we won't have to they won't have to live in a world of lies that we we weave for them because we think that they're not sexual or not capable of understanding these things and uh, so I, to sum up, answer the questions they ask, try to always use medical information, uh, accurate information, and to, you know, it, if possible, uh, think about what they might ask before they ask it, um, so you have some idea of where they're coming from. And if we are doing parenting well, which is, is a very complicated skill, we have created a situation for our children where we've always listened to them and encouraged them to talk to us. And... It can be hard to do that, uh, but if we have that way of interacting with them where we're respectful and, and active and engaged with them, then they will be comfortable to come to us to ask these questions. And sometimes we're going to have to say, you know, I think you're a little too young for that answer. Uh, so, daddy, what's a butt plug? <laughs> like, wow. Well, <laughs> uh, so a, we'll a have that discussion in five years or something? Yeah, it's a, it's a toy that adults use. Uh, 
don't ever ask me again. Uh, <laughs> actually, don't ever ask me again would be a terrible thing to say to a child. I'm not sure why I said that. But it, try to, to keep it at their level, but, but as much as possible, answer the question without necessarily opening a ton of doors if they're not ready for those doors to be open. Well, puberty obviously is going to be sort of the ne- a next level of yeah. discussion or something. Yeah, so big change. Uh, um, well, and those, I think those conversations should happen prior to puberty happening, right? So if the most people onset puberty, let's say 11 to 13, the conversation should happen around 10. Like, hey, listen, you should expect that things are going to happen in your body real soon. You're going to start growing hairs and, and around your genitals. Uh, your penis is going to grow, your testes are going to grow, your vulva is going to start doing stuff, you're going to start having menstruation, uh, your breasts are going to grow. All these things are about to happen. You're also, and more importantly, about to have some really big feelings and emotions that you're going to have no idea how to control. When that happens, come and talk to me and we can sort of work through it. You're going to have to learn a lot of new skills that you haven't had to to learn yet in order to incorporate uh, these things into your life in a positive way, which can be hard, even for adults sometimes, for us to integrate our our emotions and, and drives into our lives in positive ways. And it's very much a skill that needs to be practiced, taught in practice for it to go well. And we can really help children to get a leg up on these things if we're willing to have these frank and honest conversations with them. Well, yeah, we don't really want our kids to be primarily learning about sex with their peers in the bathroom looking at porn mags or whatever well that's the thing like a lot of people do as a matter of fact learn about sex from pornography Uh, pornography is great i love pornography i'm not in any way opposed to it but it is a terrible place to learn about sex it is performative it is fantasy uh it does not show all the lead up it doesn't show the fluffers it doesn't show the people doing the stretching it doesn't show any of that stuff it just goes right into the fantasy which is fine because that's what we want when we're masturbating but it is not a good way to learn about sex uh, not only does the way they do sex not representative of the way we actually do sex, but it doesn't show foreplay, it doesn't show cuddling. People's bodies are well outside standard deviations for, for what regular human bodies look like. So for example, the average human penis is 5.25 inches plus or minus about half an inch. The average penis in porn is around eight inches. That is three, four standard deviations out from the average human penis. So people will look at that and be like, oh, penises are gigantic. And the average male is like, oh, that's not what I have, right? Because 68%, 70% of people are going to be within a half inch of 5.25 inches. So when you see these things, these are many, many standard deviations out. Like if this were IQ, that would be well past genius, right? The people don't think about porn this way, but their bodies are not the way most human bodies look. And the things they can do with their bodies are not uh, they're like highly skilled athletes in what they can do with their bodies. Like we see a hurdler jumping hurdles uh, in the Olympics and like, oh, I guess I could do that. No, you couldn't. And you're not going to be able to have sex in those ways they're having them. Those are, that's varsity level sex right there. And you're not going to be doing it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's, that was awesome. <laughs> no, I think that's a really useful way to think about it. So, uh, um, but I, so I wanted to turn to a little bit older, older people. So a lot of people are claiming today that younger people are overly coddled. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that and manifesting in relationship problems. Um, no, because literally every generation has said that about every generation going back to as far back as we have written records. So no, I haven't seen that. 
it, a lot of these things people think are new. Um, I was reading Cicero recently and Cicero talks about uh, people being busy for the sake of being busy. This is in the Roman times, right? This is 2000 years ago. And people are like, now everyone today is busy for the sake of being busy today. And people didn't used to do that. No, no, bullshit. People have done that the entire time humans have existed. You just don't know about it. The fact you don't know doesn't mean people didn't do it. Every generation has said this about the previous, uh, the next generation. Every generation says, oh, I have this great insight. We're busy for the sake of being busy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Like these are not new things. You're just ignorant of the past. So no, I don't think it's going to change anything because I don't think it's a real phenomenon. Every generation feels like the one that comes next is coddled. I mean, the culture has changed and there are some really interesting arguments about that. So Steven Pinker in uh, Enlightenment Now talks about the shift away from a sort of, uh, the society's gotten progressively less violent and the, the things that used to be well within the bounds, like lighting a cat on fire or a bag of cats on fire is really kind of frowned on today. And probably for good reason, right? We don't just stab each other anymore. And so there is a sense in which cultures are changing over time and becoming less violent and healthier and safer. And perhaps it's a response to that, but as far back as we have written records, people have made that accusation and look, society hasn't fallen apart since we have written records. So if anything, society has gotten much better and you know, there have been many, many moments in human history, like the Declaration, uh, the Bill of Rights and Declaration of Independence that have pushed civilization forward. I mean, the idea, Locke's idea of inalienable human rights grounded in the human nature, not divine revelation or society, that pushed human civilization much further. The idea of, of trade and opening up, um, I mean, even Kant noticed this, and Kant was not a, a really, I think, a friend of humanity. Uh, civilization has improved. And so in that sense, maybe the new generations do have it easier, but they're going to have the same problems we had. They're just going to look a little different. And so, yeah, I don't think it's going to be an issue. Okay. So in your book, you mentioned that you're working on volumes two and three of the same work. Is that, are you working on that? What's the status of that? I, uh, so I, unlike academics who their job is to be paid to teach and to write, uh, I have a full-time job at being a therapist and, and other jobs. Uh, it took me about 10 years to, to get the first volume out. And actually the first volume had all three together. And I realized I was never going to get it done with the size it was. It was ballooning. Uh, so I split into three volumes so I could get each one done. Volume two is done in draft. And there's a couple chapters I needed to, to rewrite and, and I'm editing them. Um, but we do have a toddler now and uh, there is time constraints. So I'm expecting volume two will come out in two or three years and volume three, if I end up doing a volume three will be after that. Um, I am not the fastest writer in the world. So uh, it's gonna slow me down. And if I had more time, then I could get more done, but you know, life well, comes at you. Between a job and a toddler, yeah, that's, that keeps people busy. Yeah, yeah, you gotta carve out time where you can. I mean, so when I wrote this book, uh, I wrote it uh, fundamentally in 15 minutes before, if I got to work 15 minutes early, there wasn't traffic, I would sit there and write it. I would write over my lunch break. I would write after work. I would write here and there. And, you know, I never had these sort of broad stretches that some people have. And, you know, it's just as a thing to other people who might be thinking about writing books or doing big projects you can, you just need to carve out time. And sometimes it's not perfect. You're not gonna always have a perfect opportunity, a large, a whole day to write. And if you set that as your target, you're probably never gonna get your project done. If you're willing just to do it as you can and to 
to throw yourself into it in the time you have available, even very large projects are very much achievable to most people. You just can't have these rigid ideas about the right way to do them and it has to be the perfect writing day and no distractions and uh, that's not real life. In real life, these projects, these large projects often get done in these very messy ways and then cleaned up at the end, right? And you, you get rid of all the repetition that happens because you wrote it over 10 years and, you know, it, real life is messy. And for anyone thinking about doing a big project, don't hold yourself to these unrealistic standards. Uh, use what you have, including that's 10 minutes here or there. And, you know, it's hard. That's good advice. Yeah. Cause I'm, you know, I'm working on some projects too and it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to get time to, to do some work like that. Sure is. In your book, you call for a sexual ethics revolution. I do. In brief, how can people participate in that and promote the revolution? Uh, so there's a whole thing in there, but if I could say just one thing about it, I would just ask people to think about this question are the ways in which you're integrating sex into your life healthy? Are they contributing to your happiness? Are you, uh, are you being conscious and, and, and focused in the ways that you engage in sexuality? Or are you just doing everything that everyone else does because that's kind of the right thing and some things are in bounds and some things aren't. Why? Well, because that's what society says. That's, I don't think that unreflective way of engaging sexuality isn't going to serve people's lives and it's not going to lead the culture to change for the better. And if people just made that one change, just to be a little more re reflective about the way they're engaging in sexuality and thinking about it, I think that by itself would probably cause a revolution to happen. Well, we're recording the day before Valentine's Day, 2021. So this has been perfect for that. Do you have any closing thoughts before we wrap it up? Um, you know, I, I do really appreciate uh, coming on here and getting a chance to talk. And I, you know, in terms of people thinking about sex, just do it a little more. Have sex, I guess, but I mean, think about sex a little more and be willing to have uncomfortable conversations and uncomfortable thoughts and be honest with yourself about your desires and proclivities and realize that other people aren't necessarily going to share them. And instead of saying, that's not what I do, so that's wrong and gross, say, that's not my kink, but it could be yours. As long as people aren't harming other people, not hurting them, hurting could be okay, but harming is not so good, uh, or violating their rights, generally sex is a pretty healthy thing to do. And we should not be putting all these prohibitions both externally and internally on it. Uh, think about sex, think about how you're incorporating into your lives, have these conversations with yourself, let yourself have thoughts that you know you are having and pushing away, let yourself have these conversations with friends, recognize that your kink is probably not just your kink and shared by millions of other humans. Most people feel very isolated in their sexuality and that's a shame because most people's sexuality is actually not uncommon. Statistically, these kinks, uh, people who enjoy watching their partner have sex with other people, that is literally one of the most common fantasies that humans have, right? So people often feel isolated in these desires because they, they aren't willing to talk and share and read. They're not as isolated as they think. And we could have a, a much healthier connected world if people would do some of this. Okay. Well, happy Valentine's Day to listeners out there. If you're interested in more of these ideas, read Jason Stott's Eros and Ethos. 
This has been the Self and Society podcast. Our guest has been Jason Stotts. And his website is at jasonstotts.com. That's S-T-O-T-T-S dot com. For more about the podcast, please see ariarmstrong.com.